Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 74, The Myth of Redemptive Violence. Recorded Thursday, November 12th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Derek. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Derek. And we've got Derek White back. Reverend Derek White, which you weren't last time. Well, uh, technically, I was a reverend. It's just kind of weird how we do that. Uh, now I am what is called a f- an ordained elder in full connection with the United Methodist Church. So technically, I was a reverend, but now after a seven to eight year process, I am a fully ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. And then we will fully, instead of technically, congratulate you for it. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, I just want to say I appreciate you guys' support and prayers during the whole process. You guys were were always there with prayers and just words of encouragement, and that meant a lot to me. still means a lot to me. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we've got Derek White on the Geek Preacher to talk about a pretty interesting topic, one that he wanted to talk about with us. But Derek, first, take a minute for new listeners who don't remember episode 38 way back when— to introduce yourself and uh, kind of tell us about what you do as the Geek Preacher. Sure. Uh, My name, of course, is Derek White. You can find me online at geekpreacher.com or on Facebook, just searching for Geek Preacher. Uh, What I do is uh, I help lead worship services at various gaming conventions around the country. Uh, Most years you can find me at Gen Con, uh, leading the worship service there or uh, preaching a sermon. I also moderate faith and gaming panels at various conventions uh, where we talk about Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games, how you can integrate those into your church, answer questions uh, people of faith might have about whether these games are compatible with their faith. I'm, I guess you could say a gaming apologist for Christians uh, to show that it's okay for Christians to enjoy fantasy. I'm also uh, kind of an unofficial chaplain at some conventions where I do uh, pastoral care for people who don't always fit into a regular church. Uh, I uh, do a lot of pastoral counseling uh, with people in those situations. I also talk to people who have questions about faith and geekiness and uh, geeky spirituality. I write about geeky spirituality sometimes. Yes, and you also flood my uh, social media feed with interesting theological content. Yes, yes. I, I, You can uh, sometimes find some of my discussions. Me and a friend, uh, Hank Harwell, came up with a hashtag called Geek Theology, uh, where we talk uh, on Twitter and on Facebook about geeky theology. Other people have started using it now, and we try and integrate integrate the world of uh, faith and geekiness, uh, or as I call it, a fusion of faith and geekiness, or geekiness and spirituality. Yep, and if you're not following Derek on Twitter, do so, at Geek Preacher. Lots of fascinating content. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yep. Yeah. So we had Derek on, like I said, way back when, as podcast things are measured, especially around here, back in April of 2014, and... um. That was episode 38, Christians on the Convention Scene. So I'll link that in the show notes if you want to hear that previous episode. Derek, every time we get a guest on, we invite them to plug something. Do you want to plug something? 
Uh, I want to plug Geekdom House, even though you've already had these guys on. Kyle Rudge and the people at Geekdom House are doing some wonderful, awesome ministry. They have some of the best content I have seen on the Faith Geek scene. They are dedicated, hard workers. And uh, Kyle, while he he and I tease each other a lot, Kyle is a tremendous, wonderful individual. So I, I'd like to plug Geekdom House. If you're not following them on Facebook or reading their blogs, uh, you need to do so. Yeah, and we had Kyle on um, back in episode 68, so it was pretty recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got to uh, interview Kyle for the Faith and Gaming panel at Gen Con this year and love. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, Mike Pern of Inroads Ministries recorded that, so I got to listen to that. That was lots of good content there. I think I listened to that one twice in a row. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Kyle Rudge and Chris Ode. Uh, Chris uh, is an ECLA minister in the Pacific Northwest, and he is a great guy. Uh, you can't really find him on uh, on social media a whole lot. He's there, but he works with the people who do who did the Dark Dungeons movie as their spiritual advisor for the movie. Uh, he does a lot of comedy and acting with them, and he and uh, Kyle just had a had had fun going at each other on the panel. And uh, I got to tease them both unmercifully, and it was just one of the best panels I think I've ever done. Yeah, we really should link that panel in the show notes. That's very much worth listening to. I will absolutely do so. Definitely. And also uh, link the worship service in the show notes, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I will uh, I will see if I can track that down. And Oh, that's on YouTube, baby. You can find it. Get, uh, Sweet. Geek Preacher on YouTube. Gen Con uh, 2015 worship service, which was a great time this year. I'll tell you right now, we, one of the people we had come to the worship service gave, told me one of the greatest things I've ever heard. He came over from England to go to Gen Con. And he said coming to the worship service was in his top five. He put that up there with going through True Dungeon at Gen Con. And I'm awesome. going to tell you that, I mean, that is somebody who really wants his geek faith life going, you know. And uh, just had me in tears, brother. Had me in tears. Wow. Excellent. All right. Well, Derek, thank you for that. Thanks for coming on. It's a real pleasure to have you back. Well, I'm glad I got to see you guys at Fear of the Con. We got to meet face-to-face. -face yeah, and, that uh, was wonderful. It really was. Uh, man, you know, I just wish I could hug your necks right now because you guys are awesome. Well, there's pictures of you doing just that out there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but Grant wouldn't let me post the picture of me kissing him. What, what was up with that? Why wouldn't you let me post that picture? <laughs> My wife would be a little jealous. What can I say? I, uh, she would not be jealous of me, Grant. There's no way. <laughs> There's no way. No way. Fair yeah, enough. What she would be is snarky. I can definitely guarantee you yes, that. Yes, it's oh. actually mostly that. I would have to just yes. end off weeks worth of snark. And, oh, now that, that I understand. I have a 16-year-old daughter. Yeah, I understand that. I've trained her in the art of snark, and it's come back to haunt me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, real quick, before we get started on our main topic, I do want to take a second to remind everyone that we are fundraising for the Bodana Group. We've talked about it the past couple of episodes. I'm not going to spend too much time on it this one. The Bodana Group is a group that uses role-playing games in cognitive therapy applications for sexually abused and sexually abusive children. 
they do a really good job uh, helping these kids. And they do some other counseling and cognitive therapy applications, especially for caregivers, uh, social workers, that kind of thing. If you have some time, take a listen to episode 25, our interview with Jack Birkenstock, their executive director. And if you want to support a good cause, go out to our website and click on the link up in the top right to take you to the fundraiser page and uh, donate to them and help support them this holiday season. All right, let's get into our scripture, shall we? All right, Derek, since you're the guest, we give you first pick. So we got Hosea, Jonah, and Luke. Uh, I'll uh, go with Jonah. I'll go with Jonah. All right. All right. Peter, you want to take Hosea? Sure, why not? This is Hosea 6.6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 2. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Our last bit of scripture is Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 52. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Before we go on, Derek wanted to make sure that we reference uh, Matthew twenty six fifty two and note that that particular story appears in all four Gospels. So if you want to see some different takes on that in the three synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel, look it up in each of those. So our topic tonight, Derek, is yours. So why don't you introduce it for us? Well, the idea that I've been working with, uh, I teach a survey of world religions class uh, at the local community college. And the idea I've been working with is, it's called the myth of redemptive violence, but I've also integrated it with violence and the sacred. And both of these ideas come from two different thinkers, uh, two different uh, writers who came from uh, different viewpoints in approaching the scripture. Uh, one is named Walter Wink, and uh, Walter Wink was a biblical scholar. He was also an ordained Methodist minister. He wrote books like Naming the Powers, Unmasking the Powers, Engaging the Powers, things of that nature, and he wrote about the myth of redemptive violence. And then uh, René Girard was an anthropologist. In fact, what's interesting is he passed away right after, the day after, I taught my class on this topic, uh, which was really kind of weird for me, and he talked a lot about violence and the sacred and uh, the idea of scapegoating and how uh, we use a scapegoat mechanism to uh, bring about peace. 
uh, and how that's the foundation of human culture is using a scapegoat to bring about peace. And so when I brought both of those together, a lot of things just began to work out for me and coalesce. It really, I think, speaks strongly to geek culture and how we are as geeks, both in our everyday life, but it also speaks to us in our games. There is this cycle of violence we see. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, One of the things I put here was Walter Wink and superheroes. Who's your favorite superhero, Grant? Uh, You know, it's a tough question, but I think I'm going to have to say The Flash. The Flash. Which is unusual for me, but... That's okay. I love the new TV show. So we'll use The Flash as an example. What happens uh, when The Flash captures a villain? Uh, Well, generally speaking, he will put him somewhere, and then eventually that villain will get out so that you can have another confrontation with him. And that's the cycle of violence right there. Uh, Yep. That's what happens. You, the superhero goes out, captures the villain, puts the villain away, and the villain escapes. The superhero goes after them again. It keeps continuing. Now, we, of course, know that happens in modern culture because without it, you wouldn't have a good story. Where's the Batman if the Joker doesn't keep coming back? You know, you have to have the recurring villain just like so that the story keeps going on. Well, What Walter Wink says is that's the way it works in real life. Now, in real life, we might kill the villain, but in killing the villain, the cycle of violence continues. And so uh, one of the things uh, in the Old Testament, you had uh, the uh, story of the blood avenger. Uh, So, for instance, if someone went in and they killed a lot of a village or they killed your family or they killed your close friends or relatives... You could take upon yourself the blood avenger oath, and you could go track them down. Well, mm-hmm. you track them down, you kill them. Their family takes upon themselves the blood avenger oath, and then they come back after you. It's it's a cycle of violence, whether you capture the villain and put them away and let them escape, or even if you kill the villain, the cycle of violence is never ending. Early mythologies, Babylonian mythology, had that as central to its story. Greco-Roman mythology had that essential to their story. And what Walter Wink does is he tries to say the Christian story is not like this. The Christian story is one of a deity, of a God who has humankind pour out its violence upon him, upon himself, And he does not return the violence with violence. He returns the violence with forgiveness. And then the other example is you have of scapegoating. Now, Peter, you grew up as a geek, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Did you ever get scapegoated on the playground? Not really. Um, Oh, man. Oh, man. Good for you. Unfortunately, you you picked the most stable guy to choose for your example. Okay. All right. Hey, did you ever scapegoat anybody else? Oh, not that I remember. Well, good for you. I, I most I didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up, but it mostly took the the form of just not really having a social circle. Okay. Did you ever see someone scapegoated? Did you ever see someone that people singled out to uh, just make fun of or gather around or pick on? Did you ever see that happening growing up? I'm sure I did. I couldn't give you a specific example okay. off the top of my head. 
I'm well, sure I did. I mean, children are awful to each other. I just, I'm 37 now, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you're not emotionally scarred enough to remember. So, you, wow, wow. It probably I, I really... even happened to me, honestly, but it, I don't remember any specific. <laughs> well, what happens in scapegoating is the idea of the scapegoat is that uh, we find someone other or we find someone different and we use them to uh, pour out our violence and our anger upon that person or that group. Uh, you can see it happen a lot in politics. Uh, we scapegoat a particular group, whether it's a racial group, an economic group, uh, some sort of disenfranchised group, and we say they are the problem. And then we pour out our wrath and our anger upon them and in doing so, it brings about some sort of temporary peace because the collective violence of the community is poured out on this group or this individual. And in pouring out the violence on this group or this individual, everybody else has something to unite around. That happened in the South during the Civil Rights Movement, before the Civil Rights Movement. African Americans were often scapegoated in communities. Uh, that way, uh, they, it, it created community cohesion. It happened in Germany, uh, where the Jewish people were the scapegoats. And it brought about a time of peace in Germany before they began their expansion. What scapegoating a person does, or a group of people, is it brings the community closer together and brings them a sense of peace for a time. The problem with that is you repeat the cycle of violence. The peace only lasts for a certain period, and then you have to find a new scapegoat. Well, and the term comes from using a literal goat for this from back correct. in the Levitical Code, right? That's correct. That's correct. And that's where René Girard, who is an anthropologist, got this from. And what Girard did with this is Girard said that uh, the difference is, is most scapegoats actually do have something wrong with them. Most scapegoats that we choose have problems that we can exploit. What Gerard does is he says Jesus was the unexploitable scapegoat. And he takes upon himself the violence of humanity. And he becomes the scapegoat to end all scapegoating. So in Jesus... The other, the different, the strange are all brought into the family of God. And so it is the person of Jesus that is meant to bring about peace to all of us. And so it becomes in this Jesus experience an experience of peace and mercy because he has taken on the scapegoating of the religious powers of his day, of the political powers of his day, but not just of his day, but of all history. And in pouring out all that pain and anger on the one who does not deserve to be a scapegoat, in pouring all of that out on Jesus, we find ourselves pouring out our own scapegoating, our own desire to scapegoat someone. We pour that out on Jesus. And in doing that, he accepts it willingly, and we become at peace with God through Christ. Hmm. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? It, 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 there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I, I think the, you know, Jesus as sacrificial lamb I'm familiar with. Right. I was less familiar with this explicit idea of a cycle of 
supposed redemptive violence, although certainly I think we're all familiar with the phrase cycle of violence. Yeah. You know, um, I think we all instinctively understand that violence begets violence. Right. Right. That does not necessarily mean that we choose the other path. Yeah, we're very good at justifying why, you know, we get to use it this time. Right. Yeah, this time, this once, it, it's fine. It's fine. Just not every other time. Right. When you're doing it to me. You know, it, I, we're very good at justifying that. But I think, um, I suspect at any rate that most of us instinctively understand it's a cyclical process rather than something with a specific endpoint at least outside of a Christian framework. Well, and the thing is, just as a quick side note, if you are so thoroughly violent that you stop the cycle, what you have actually done is caused an extinction event. Because at some point, somebody that you take out is going to have people who object to them being gone. So you can either eliminate everybody with consciousness, or the cycle will continue. Right, and even then... Can can you eliminate everybody? That that's why you see these things happen. This is why genocide occurs. You want to take out everybody so nobody comes back at you. And don't some of the best fantasy stories always have at least that one survivor who comes back to avenge his people? Well, and the thing is, bystanders won't stand by for that either. Because they'll they'll look at it and say this could be me next, or even just in you know but some of the better cases if, that's awful, you know. Not if not if uh, they are, and this is the horror of scapegoating. This is why scapegoats are used, because see there there becomes no bystander. You're either the scapegoat or the scapegoater, and so that's why it works so well is you don't leave bystanders. You're either on my side or you're on the side of the scapegoat. If you're on the side of the scapegoat, you get killed. So what we do is we rally you around on our side. Uh, I hate to use Germany as an example because that ends every conversation on the internet, right? Well, I'll tell you what, let me give well, you a different example. And okay. actually, I, I, have, I was going for something a little bit different. By bystanders, okay. I mean people from a different society who look in. Because if you're going to use Germany, yeah. at some point, some of, the, some of the other societies in the world take a look at what's going on and say, whoa, we, we can't let this keep happening. Well, unfortunately, they did. Exactly. They did. Uh, Until they didn't. <laughs> but they, they let it keep happening until Germany walked into their front yard. Right. It wasn't, oh, look at those Germans mistreating the Jewish people. It was, hey, look at the Germans knocking on my front door. That becomes the problem. It, we say, well, that's it. You know, uh, one of the biggest things we do in the United States is we decide when something is a, a, a country's internal problem and we, we avoid it. You know, uh, look at the mass genocides that go on in Africa all the time that we ignore. People of uh, alternate lifestyles, people who may be LGBT, are often slaughtered and killed in mass in countries in Africa. And we in America look by and go, oh, that's so horrible. Yeah, I think the last time we got involved in something just because there was, was ethnic cleansing going on, it was in Eastern Europe back in the 90s, right? That was the last time we we intervened just because there was genocide, not because there was some kind of resource or something exactly that i can recall yeah that i can recall. Uh, the example that i was thinking of specifically talking about scapegoating was actually in germany but about 400 years earlier oh come on now those of you who 
have not listened to it should take some time, and I mean a lot of time, to listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. There's a very good episode, Prophets of Doom. Uh, I'll link this episode, Prophets of Doom. Um, it's about four hours, uh, four and a half hours. <laughs> he does these huge history episodes. But what this episode's about was the German city of Münster during the Reformation, which became a sort of hotbed of Anabaptist millennialist violence. Mm -hmm. Now, those of you familiar with the Anabaptists will know that that's the root of a lot of very nonviolent denominations. But there was this very cult-like branch of millennialist, violent Anabaptist uh, mob mentality that picked Munster as a, as a site for various different reasons, which take four and a half hours to describe, so I'm not going to get into them here. Um, but what ends up happening is you have this kind of cult leader figure who basically forces that division between them and us. Because the Anabaptists were being terribly persecuted throughout all of Germany and Northern Europe at this time. Uh, just for being an Anabaptist, generally speaking, you were burned at the stake. It was a very tense time for lots of different reasons. And so he, they basically kind of take this one city over and people who are, you know, maybe not as devoted or not as willing to rebel and, you know, swear loyalty to this one particular guy who believed himself a prophet basically kind of become that other and culminates in this moment where he's, there's this big confrontation that happens, which then subsequently leads into some other history that's not quite as relevant, but it's the same. You're either with us, all of us together, or you're with them, this weaker group that will necessarily betray us, right? And it's a very, very stark instance of scapegoating oh, yes. for religious reasons and people who were genuinely believing by and large, that they were doing the right thing. These are all Christians. This is right at the heart of the Reformation. So, very interesting podcast. I'd encourage you to listen to it. It is occasionally difficult to listen to because the 1500s in Europe were still a pretty nasty time. But really worth your time if you can take four and a half hours to listen to it. You know, take a week. Well, it, it is. And, and I know the stories you're talking about, and, and it's absolutely horrible. What's amazing is how we also use our language to scapegoat others. I'm a big fan of etymology, which is the origin of words. And so, for instance, you know, one of the most common words that Christians have used to uh, scapegoat someone is pagan, right? We've all mm -hmm. heard that, pagan. Uh, you, know, you know what the word pagan simply means? Basically, redneck. Actually, redneck would actually be close to it. It, it comes from the uh, Latin word paganus, which means simply villager or rustic. It could also have just meant civilian, the average person, uh, heathen. The, we use the word heathen as Christians to scapegoat people, and it simply means someone who, who inhabited the open country. So scapegoating often comes from the people in power who are looking for someone to lay the blame on. And so what ends up happening is we take our power when we're in a position of power and we scapegoat other people and we use derogatory terms for those people. 
uh, heathen and pagan. Uh, as geeks, uh, many of us were scapegoated when we first came on the scene, and geek was a derogatory term. Geek was used uh, as a term for, uh, you know, there's lots of debates over the origin of the word geek, but originally geek was a guy at the sideshow who bit the head off of a chicken. And so geeks were considered weirdos and strange. And so what ends up happening is uh, when these people who have been scapegoated for so long, they begin to proudly proclaim those names which were used to scapegoat them. Uh, redneck. I have many friends who are proud. I'm, I'm in the South. I have many proud redneck friends. I've met uh, many people who love to use the name pagan to describe themselves and their spirituality because they want to take and own that derogatory term that was used against them. But by the mm -hmm. nature of our very language, we, we try and scapegoat someone and other them. We want to make them the other. And for us as geeks, the key becomes when we're, you know, I remember seeing the memes just a few years ago uh, where, you know, you'd have the geek who's running the Fortune 500 company and the high school uh, superstar is now uh, emptying his trash can in his office. And, you know, they would show this is him in high school where the, the high school uh, football player shoving him in a trash can, and now he's smiling as the high school superstar empties his trash can. And uh, that just becomes us as geeks repeating the same cycle of violence. Sure. I mean, terms like dude bro and sports ball kind of go to that. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. I'd forgotten all about dude bro. I'd forgotten dude bro. And I've got to stop using it now. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. it's that same contempt for the other and you know oh well we're in charge now so we get to be the people punching down right right and, and that's what the cycle of violence is about and that's what scapegoating is about uh it, it just all comes back in this vicious vicious circle and mm -hmm. and that that's difficult that's really difficult because it makes us feel good when we scapegoat someone else when it's no longer us. It's true. So let's talk about this in a gaming context, because if we are all agreed, and I think we are, that we're using games for enjoyment, but also to practice, if you will, for real life, to express that same, those same concepts, to practice what we preach. Right. How do we reflect this in our games, and how do we point out the different way? The obvious example, and I'm, I'm just pulling straight from the outline here, is the GM sets up a situation where the player group has the opportunity to rescue somebody who is being scapegoated. I, and I think that's a pretty common scene, right? You have the classic charismatic, you know, a pretty woman in danger or, uh, you know, young child who's being rescued from a mob, that sort of thing. And then the hero shows up, drives them off and rescues them. Now, here, here's my question for you. Are we actually changing that in any fundamental way when we do that scene? I would say yes, in, in a way we are, because uh, we are keeping people from othering someone. We, uh, you know, that goes back to that first scripture that was read, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> and so you're showing mercy to that person, uh, something 
else that we can do in games if we rescue someone instead of rescuing the princess or rescuing the small child do we rescue the orc babies right yeah do we rescue the ugly princess or yeah i mean <laughs> heck do you do you rescue somebody who you know has done something bad yeah you know, it's like there's there's a um did either of you ever watch the shield it was oh, a police no. drama that was on for a while. No. <clears throat> There's uh, I saw a one or two episodes. That's okay, it. so there was this thing in one of the later seasons where there's the, the one kind of central character of the series is this kind of corrupt and dirty cop named Vic Mackey. And um, later in the series, one of the other officers who works for the same unit starts going back through some of his cases where he had fabricated evidence or, you know, done other shady kinds of stuff to get people behind bars and he confronts the person who's doing this and he's like you know why are you you know wasting all of your time trying to get these these creeps off and she's like because he's innocent this time i don't care what he's done in the past this this thing that you got him on he wasn't guilty of and at the time i was actually when i was watching this i was much more sympathetic to the guy, you know, the, this kind of dirty cop is like, oh, well, he's being very pragmatic and stuff. And it's like, no, actually, he's, you know, I can kind of look back now and it's like he's corrupting the whole process by that. That, that reminds attitude. me of a story. Uh, well, actually, it happened to me when I was a boy. Uh, my mom was spanking me one time and I said, but mom, I didn't do it. And uh, she realized halfway through the spanking that I didn't do it. And she looked at me and she said, that's okay. I know that you did something else that you probably got away with, so I'm getting you for that one then. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> um, that actually brings to mind, I, I don't have any particular episodes of scapegoating or being scapegoated on the playground that I can remember, but the one thing that I do remember is that there was one time when um, I was having some trouble with some other kids at a youth group that I was in in junior high because I was a junior higher, and that's just kind of the way that it goes. And my yeah. dad had sent a sealed letter with me to, like, the, the leader of things kind of explaining some of the stuff about me, and I lost it. And I could not convince my dad at the time that I had not opened it and read it and gotten rid of it because of the contents. And I finally, years later, you know, I was, like, probably, I don't know, 26, 27 or something like that. I was out to lunch with my dad, who I have a generally very good relationship with. And I actually, I looked him straight in the eye. I was like, you know, this has been bothering me for years. I want to clear the air on this. I actually did lose that letter. I did not open it and read it, you know, because it's like, by this point, the stakes were nothing, you know, it was so far past it, you know, and he had no memory of it, but that stuck with me. So wow. being accused when you're innocent really does do a number on you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I, I do have to say, in in my father's defense, that is probably the single worst and only particularly bad failure of parenting I can point to from him. My dad is a very, very good guy. But uh, yeah, that was that was something that left a mark on me. Well, here's something else that, that we can do in gaming stories, too. Because when I first came across Walter Wink and his writing on the myth of redemptive violence... I had a big disagreement with some of it, and I still disagree with some of it because one of the characters that he uh, talked about that was a great example of redemptive violence was Superman 
for the very reason Superman would capture an enemy and uh, they would get out. The cycle would continue and the cycle would continue. The Flash on the current TV series does this similar thing that I'm going to say about Superman. The thing was with, that I disagreed and I, I was doing this in seminary and I, I told my professor, I said, well, here's the problem. I said, Batman is a great example of redemptive violence. Batman is, is an example of the violence continuing and continuing. Superman is not. And he said, why not? I said, because Superman does not kill or destroy his enemies because Superman always hopes that his enemies will be redeemed. And uh, you saw that, I, I think, very clearly. I had my problems with the Smallville TV show. Yeah. But one of the things that I really liked about it was the Lex Luthor character. Clark Kent never wanted to destroy Lex Luthor because he always had a hope that Lex would eventually be redeemed. He always hoped Lex would become a good guy. And I think that is something that can play well in a story where we rescue the evil person. You could uh, rescue the king's evil younger brother because the king still believes there's some good left in his younger brother and that his younger brother might change. So in the game, you have to defeat the younger brother without killing him, without making him a scapegoat, and bring him back to the older brother, maybe for healing and for love and for redemption. Uh, maybe even have a, a, a take on the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal father, whichever one you want to call it. Now, now, don't get me wrong, man. I like to just wantonly kill the bad guys as much as I can sometimes in games because I think games can serve that purpose of helping us release our violent tendencies in fiction without releasing them upon other people. Oh, yeah. When we finish with this, I'm totally going to go play some more Fallout 4. There you go. See? Yeah. You know, mindless violence. It, it can be very cathartic. And so there can be stories, though, that we can do that are redemptive stories, stories of rescue, stories of hope. I, I think uh, one of the greatest things Gary Gygax ever told me was he said, I really don't like it when players run evil characters. I never imagined D&D &D to be a game where people would really want to run evil characters. Uh, and, and so most of the games I tend to run I've played evil characters, I've run evil campaigns, but at, at my heart, I like to see a heroic game, a game where we rescue people, a game where uh, characters give their lives selflessly for others. And so that's something you can see in a game, and maybe that's not something you as a game master might bring out, maybe that's something some of your players might bring out. Although I will say this, encouraging it as a GM is is definitely something you can do. Oh, definitely. There was that, that um, fantasy game that I ran the first time I ever ran a campaign that actually went shockingly well that I've referenced a few times. I required good alignments for the, the three PCs in that game. I, it wasn't even non-evil. It's like, no, you don't even get neutrality. You've got lawful, <laughs> neutral, and chaotic good. Pick. And I actually got one of each for the... Um, the uh, player group, and that made for some really interesting situations, but that was such a fantastic game because it was like, all right, we are the good guys. We are the heroes. We're going to go out and, you know, darn it, we're going to do what needs doing to keep all of these other innocent people in this setting from having to deal with the stuff that we keep finding. So that was great. It made for some really good storytelling. 
Yeah, and I think one of the other ways you can do this as a GM is simply to not be afraid to let violence of any sort have consequences. Yes. And let it be ugly. Well, it, it depends on what it is. Uh, it can be reciprocal, right? Re reflecting straight back at the players, but maybe not as ugly necessarily. I, I would say if it continues to be a perfect mirror of what the players have just done, I think you're going to frustrate them because it will feel like you're not letting them get anywhere. But if you show them the consequences of their actions and those seem to flow realistically from those actions, or at least believably from those actions, I think you may have more success with that. Well, and the other thing that I would suggest, and this is actually from that Shadowrun game that you ran, is just humanize your NPCs. I mean, that first run that we went through with the sabotaging the uh, the energy drink release by making the stuff taste horrible, like you humanized yeah. all of these NPCs in that initial like spying run that we did through the plant, and that set the tone for the entire campaign. You know, we we mm -hmm. went through there, and it was like, okay, these are all just regular working people trying to to make a living. How can we get in, do our mission, and get out without costing any of these people their lives, their health, or their jobs? Yeah, but here's the thing. What happened to the one guy that you kept picking on over and over because I made up. him a jerk? <laughs> <laughs> the yep. cycle continued. You know, it was a blind spot for us, and he kept coming back. So, and I don't know if that's a failure on my my part. Oh, no, that's definitely honestly. a success. It was a failure on our part, I think, not to realize what was going on there, but it was a success on yours. Well, it may have been a failure on my part to understand it as well at the time, but, you know, it made for a good scapegoat for well, you Well, and guys. it made sense, right? I mean, you know, this guy's been kicked around a few times. He's going to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Derek, um, there was something in the, the article you sent me when we were talking about having you on for this where it actually referenced violence as part of a creation myth and then contrasted that to Genesis. Yes. Do we want to dig into that a little bit more here? Or? Uh, well, actually, I, I did. I actually preached on some of that at Gen Con a few years ago. There are different creation myths, and uh, one of the things that a lot of people forget is that the Hebrews would have been influenced by Babylonian creation myths. They would have been in right, specifically Enuma Elish. Right, the Enuma Elish. That's exactly it. And so. In that story, you have a world created out of violence, the gods fighting among each other, and the world is created out of that violence. The world is created out of the blood and the bones of the, of the deities. But there are some similarities in the language that the Hebrew people are using. The Hebrew people are using similar language, and part of the story begins the same way. But there's no violence. Uh, there's no violence in the creation myth, and uh, I, in the creation story in Genesis. There, I don't. Yeah, there's use no that. violence at all in Genesis until humans get there. Exactly, and this is the big difference in, in the other creation myths. In the other creation myths, violence begins with the deities. In the Christian story and in the Hebrew story, violence begins with humanity. There is no, the devil made me do it in the Genesis story. 
There is no, the devil made me sin. In fact, the word sin in Genesis is not used until Cain murders Abel. It's not even used in the garden when Adam and Eve are cast out. The word sin does not come into play until the first murder is occurring or about to occur. So what you have is the Hebrews writing a counter-narrative. They're saying there are similarities between your story and ours, but here's where it ends. Your deities are violent, and they pour out their violence, and they've created humankind. In the Enuma Elish, humanity was created to be slaves, actually to be waiters at the table of the gods. The gods said, hey, we need to create people because we're hungry and somebody needs to serve us food. And so human beings were created to be slaves to the deities. In the Genesis account, we are created because God wants us to be companions. And as Tolkien would say, sub-creators. God creates us in God's own image that we might walk with God, that we might be like God. God creates us because God wants a companion. Where all the other myths are violent and horrible and human beings are meant to be slaves and servants to the deities, human beings are meant to be a companion and a friend to God. And that's what we see in the Genesis account. It is such a powerful counter-narrative to all other mythologies because I don't know of, I can't think of any other mythologies off the top of my head that just have such a peaceful origin to humanity. Yeah, I certainly can't either. I can't either. I suspect that there is something like that in Hinduism but I am not sure because I have not read well, enough I'm, I'm of that. Well, I'm actually I'm actually teaching Hinduism right now. I started my lecture on Hinduism, and so when you have Shiva, uh, Shiva is the destroying aspect of God. Whether you believe the Hindus are polytheistic or monotheistic, their deity has a destructive aspect. Uh, right. Whereas you know some people would say the deity uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures, has a destructive aspect because we, we quote out of context passages like our God is a consuming fire, whereas consuming fire often means consuming up the dross, consuming up the bad, and leaving only that which is pure. So when we say God is a consuming fire, we mean God is a purifying one. It's not meant to destroy us. It's meant to cleanse away all that which is bad. Whereas in uh, the Hindu myths, it's all about the cycle of creation, destruction, creation, destruction, creation, destruction. Uh, and, right. and, and the interesting thing is some Christians view the scriptures that way. Uh, and I think they're viewing them wrong. They see it as God creates, God destroys, God restores. Instead of God creates, humanity screws it up. God Blames it partially on God. Oh, God forgives us, par- that, that's and that nice cycle to, continues. To give us that much credit, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, we we uh, God creates, we screw it up. God cleanses, God redeems, mm-hmm. God renews, God saves. Then we screw it up again. So instead of the deity being the one who creates, destroys, and creates. You have these cycles of violence in there in that story, and that 
That's what Wink's trying to get across. And I think, and that's what Rene Girard tries to get across as an anthropologist, is says our story is so much different than that. Our story is the story that ends violence. Uh, our story is a story of redemption. But what I truly like about it is it puts the whole weight of sin, you know, and, and coming from a Wesleyan framework, uh, sin is is not something I just inherited from Adam and Eve. It's my own fault. It's my own fault that I do this. You know, uh, one of our hymns that we sing says, save me from my bent to sinning. We have, we're bent towards sin. We're bent toward violence. But this is our fault. It's not something God has put on us or God has cursed us with. It's it's who we and are. And it's certainly not something that we've gotten from God. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, me and the Presbyterian Church, you know, we're very familiar with the idea of total depravity, which is not, you know, we are completely and utterly evil, unable to do any good, but rather it's that while we bear God's image and we do our best to do good, we're never going to be good, fully pleasing to God, wholly pleasing to God, without God's redemptive power. Yeah, and, and we would agree with that in the Wesleyan, you know, yeah. is, is... Total depravity, I think, is very commonly misunderstood, so I wanted to kind of oh, yeah. clarify that. And see, uh, and probably the biggest difference I have is, you know, uh, with my brothers and sisters in, in, in a more Calvinist tradition, is that, because uh, I'm, I'm looking at these notes on nonviolent tabletop games, and one of you wrote pandemic. <laughs> that was and, me. <laughs> all right. All right. Great one. Well, you know, in, in my tradition, uh, we, we take some things from Eastern Orthodoxy. And in Eastern Orthodoxy, sin is seen more of as a disease. Instead of just being dead, we're, we're, it's just a disease we're infected with, you know. Uh, and so I like to use that analogy that, you know, the way to overcome sin is to uh, get your uh, booster shot from Jesus. Uh, you know, that's where prayer, spiritual disciplines come in, things of that nature is that is your booster shot to overcome this life-threatening illness called sin. So maybe when I play Pandemic again, I'll have to think about that. Well, in bringing this back around to gaming for a moment, a situation like you have in Pandemic where you've got a group of heroic characters basically trying to save the world from the depredations of nature in some way, whether it's natural disasters or disease or something like that, definitely goes against the whole cycle of violence thing, because you're at that point, you're just trying to protect and preserve, and there's no combat involved, or there's very little, most likely, if any at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Games like that are wonderful. Uh, I like exploration games, too. You know, Indiana Jones-style games uh, where you're going to, uh, you have to maneuver around the traps and things of that nature. Uh, those are always fun. Or if you're attacked, you're attacked by, you know, wild animals or something like that, something non-sentient, so that there's not a whole lot of, you don't have to worry about, you know, hey, oh no, am I killing killing somebody, something sentient? No, this is just a wild animal, or it's a trap. Uh, one of the things I like to throw in games, which I don't know if I've told you guys this before, uh, when I, I'm dealing with games, I uh, sometimes use demons and devils because I want something that is purely evil in the game. Mm -hmm. 
where it's okay, you know, hey, I want You can just take the gloves off and go full force at yes, this thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. You want something there, you know. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I do like the tragic. I love the anti-hero. And I think one of the reasons we like anti-heroes is because they reflect our lives so much. Our lives, which are tainted right. with the good and the bad. You take the good, you take the bad. Those are the facts of life. Uh, or did I just date myself really horribly bad? <laughs> well, I didn't get it, so, you know. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm old. I'm old now. Uh, you're just no, a little yeah. older than us. I'm That's, becoming a gray you know. beard. There was a TV show, and that was the theme song. It was called The Facts of Life. You take the good, you take the bad. That's uh, the facts okay. of life. And so uh, that's what happens with the anti-hero. You get the good, you get the bad. Uh, you know, that's why we like guys like Ash in Evil Dead, you know, uh, he uh, or Army of Darkness. Here's a guy who's a big jerk, but, you know, he does good stuff, too. And that describes us a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And it allows us in those games to work out sometimes some of the bad within us. Uh, and causes us to do good. And and I love seeing that develop. The longest term campaign, I had a character who started off just wanting to be evil. And at the end of the game, he ends up sacrificing himself for the rest of the party. And, and I saw this individual's character as a person change in the telling of that story. And, and that that's important. This is one reason that, despite all of its mechanical flaws... One of my favorite, rather specialized games, uh, and I say kind of specialized, it's a Savage World setting with its own ton of rules because it's a superhero game. To get back to that uh, superhero concept, right? Uh, yeah. This is Necessary Evil, and the conceit of it is that there's an alien invasion in a Earth full of superheroes and supervillains. The superheroes drive them off. A second wave of aliens show up and say, oh, thank you, let's have a big, you know... Thank you for all of these superheroes who drove off all this aliens. And that turns out to be an ambush when all the superheroes are killed. Oh, wow. There's like three or four left who have gone into hiding. And the rest of the Earth is pretty much enslaved except for this one city, which for reasons nobody is clear on, but which come up in the story, the aliens kind of leave alone. And it turns out that the first wave is basically a a feint, right? It's it's a trap that the these alien masterminds have set up. All that is left are the supervillains. And the supervillains look around and say, no, I was going to conquer the world and I am not letting you have this. And so you are playing supervillains fighting to free the world. And the whole point mm. of the game is that by the end of it, those supervillains are the new superheroes. Mm. And so for all that, the system doesn't work especially well and is very easily broken because they took the very, well, they took the very carefully and appropriately balanced Savage Worlds math and added a whole bunch of extra dice, which in a game of where dice explode for damage is awful. <laughs> um, it just threw the combat math way off and it was, it was a big mess. But the point oh, I is, love exploding dice. I oh, love wonderful. It is dice. really satisfying. Trust me. It is incredibly satisfying to roll like 45 when you're rolling a D12 and it keeps exploding. It just oh, feels did, so good. Yeah. What was but, that? Yeah. Did I roll that one time with that D6 that just loved me that night? Like 27 on a six-sided die or something? It was insane. Yeah. And that feels so good. But yeah. Hackmaster has exploding die. And it is a beautiful, beautiful feeling. I think all to, of the systems I really love have exploding dice. 
Oh man, to watch a D four, to watch a D four explode. Yeah, two D four explode. Oh my goodness, on both D four. Oh yeah. Oh man, yes, it, it, yes. it feels great. But anyway, that's that's the whole point <laughs> of that setting is. To a certain degree, there's that cycle of violence, right? But it is also a redemptive story where at the end of it, there are people who have stepped up and become antithetical to what they were, and they are now defenders and champions of humanity. It's a very interesting uh, source book. See, and and that's where, you know, uh, I think Wink's work sometimes falls apart because uh, Wake was very, very much a peace person. I mean, he worked for peace societies and groups. Uh, he may have even fallen into the pacifist category. Mm-hmm. And and Wake, where I would disagree is, uh, he would say that one of the things that he he always talked about was a lot of times the people using redemptive violence to continue telling their stories. But we forget the human element where sometimes this level of violence causes people to step up who would not normally step up in a way. You know, uh, back to our earlier talk about Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer stepped up. Now, that poor man lost his life. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 20th century martyr because he stepped up and conspired to have Adolf Hitler assassinated. Here's a man who loved peace and he believed in peace, but he stepped up and took steps toward violence because he saw no other way to end what was occurring. And so there are times when we as Christians have to step up and sometimes we have to respond in such a way that it would, I, I feel, you know, I have many friends who are in Mennonite traditions and Amish traditions uh, or in pacifistic traditions, and I highly respect them for their choice. But there is a time when we need to step up and sometimes use strong tactics to stop the innocent, the marginalized, the outcast. I think the the key to this violence, this cycle of violence to ending it, one is to act peacefully, but the other way to end it is when we step up with no other thought before us except to help the Well, the, the archetypical fictional example of that is Atticus Finch sitting on the porch with the rifle in front of the police station in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? I mean... Exactly. That's a great example. So many times we, we forget that in, in the stories. Uh, uh, here's one from, uh, you know, my own. Are you guys, have you guys read Dragonlance? Uh, a long time ago. I think maybe one book okay. way back when. Okay, uh, in the Dragonlance novels written by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, in that there there is the story of the guy who's always on the verge of evil. His name's Raceland. Raceland is a wizard who's always flirting with evil. He Crane. comes across this race of creatures called gully dwarves. Gully dwarves were made fun of by other gamers left and right because they were like gutter trash dwarves, and they were very stupid. They couldn't count beyond two. Well, 
uh, Raceland charms one of the gully dwarves to do what he wants the gully dwarf to do. In the end, he realized this gully dwarf just cared for him because he was him, and he always held on to that. And he stood up to protect these gully dwarves, this gutter trash that everybody, including other dwarves, humans, elves, dragons, everybody despised, misused, and mistreated the gully dwarves. And yet you have this character on the verge of evil who steps up to protect them and care for them. And so, you know, I think that is is at the heart of the Christian story, is we step up to protect the weak. Sometimes that might mean we exchange our life for the weak and the hurting. Sometimes that means we might have to step up and do like Atticus Finch and sit on the porch with a shotgun ready to stop people from harming the weak. Man, there's there's a role-playing scenario in there, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's definitely... Yeah. I, I have yet to orchestrate it in one of my games, but I really want to one of these days. Don't we all? Don't we all? So many games, yeah. so little time. I, I do want to wrap this conversation up with a couple of notes. First, if you're looking for a good example of this cycle of violence, take a look at the Sicari. S I C A R I I. These are a extremist offshoot of Jewish zealots that arise kind of like 50-ish A.D. There's an earlier line of thought that Judas Iscariot was one of these. He may have been kind of a, he was certainly a zealot, maybe a proto-Sicariot, but as a distinct movement, they kind of, they come after Christ. But look up the Sicarii. These are Jewish extremists who are assassinating Roman figures and, in a way, tend to bring about the eventual destruction of the temple because of this violence. They're, they're right. part and parcel of that extremist movement that eventually brings Rome down so hard that the temple is destroyed. Another story talking about scapegoating that I would strongly recommend is Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. It's from uh, 1970, 70-something, published originally in uh, New Dimensions, and I know it's in The Wind's Twelve Quarters, which is a short story collection. I kind of don't want to spoil it, but it's essentially a utopia founded on kind of the ultimate scapegoating, and it ends on a rather ambiguous note of people finding, trying to find something better than that utopia. Very strongly recommend it. Uh, it's like five to eight pages. Very short story. Find it. It's really, really good. And I have something that I would like to recommend as a an example of the cycle of violence that is, I'm going to call this a fictionalized historical account. If you have not seen the Hatfields and McCoys series that starred um, Kevin Costner and Bill Paxton a few years ago, it is available on Netflix and you should make time to watch it this weekend. <laughs> it does an excellent job of kind of showing just the kind of pointlessness and tragedy and grief and just brokenness that happens when people get themselves into a cycle like this and nobody is willing to to be the one who just lets somebody have the, the final offense and forgive and walk away. 
I think it ends on kind of a a somewhat hopeful note, but it's it's very bittersweet. I uh, I cannot recommend that highly enough. It it covers a lot of what we've been talking about, and it is actually based on a historical series of events that lasted for quite a while. So that's definitely worth watching. You guys reminded me of when you were talking about the Sakari and, and the violence. One of the things that's interesting is in Mark's gospel, when the crowd is out there and uh, and the crowd says, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Pilate says to the crowd, and the crowd says, crucify, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he could not persuade the crowd to change his mind, he released Barabbas. Now, Bar means son, Abba means father. And so here you have this uh, man running around with the name son of the father, and Barabbas was known for having killed people. And so the crowd is saying, crucify the man who is, is bringing about peace crucify the one who came and called himself, who, who we call the king of the Jews, and you're calling the king of the Jews. Crucify the one who said there's a better way, there's a better way of peace, and we want the son of God, the son of the father, who is a military leader. Yep. And that's what the crowd called for. So, Because very often we want to be delivered by violence instead of being delivered by the way of peace. Uh, I just had to drop that No, I, I think that's a good spot to end on. I do want to, real quick before we wrap up, uh, ask everyone, if you normally skip our credit sequence at the end, stay tuned. I got something special for you. Woohoo! But Derek, thank you very much for coming on. This has been an awesome discussion. Uh, I think we've gotten a lot of good out of this. I hope so, man. Thank you for having me, man. This is uh, my meat and drink. I, I love this stuff. I love to bring it in my games. I love to think about it in terms of the geek life. And uh, I'm not just a uh, role-playing geek. I'm a theology geek. So, you know, I love it all, man. Well, and I enjoy awesome. it. This is what happens when a very kind of peaceful pastor wears a Punisher costume for Halloween. Is he winds up on a podcast talking <laughs> about the mystery death violence. <laughs> That's how yeah, this whole yeah. that's how the the conversation that led to Derek being on this time started. <laughs> yeah, y'all saw my Punisher costume. Yep. Yeah, I think that scared a few people. They 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 were they were uh they were surprised. Yeah, I was definitely yep. surprised. I I wasn't scared, but I was like, "Oh, there's there's definitely a point to this." So <laughs> <laughs> See, see that's the problem. Peter's gotten to know me so well. I I can't do anything and just say Oh, yeah, I just did that for the fun of it, you know. I'm just like, uh-huh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> everything's a teaching moment with you, Derek. <laughs> this is this is one of the things that I love about you, and also one of the things I've learned to watch for. So. <laughs> and one of the things my children have learned to watch out for. <laughs> I can't think of a better note to end this on than that. I know. Derek, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Real quick. Um, do you know what the next convention you're going to be at will be? Uh, right now, the next convention I'm going to be at is GaryCon in March. Uh, it is in the first week of March. Uh, I go to GaryCon every year. It is one of the greatest old school gaming conventions. They have some of the best guests around. If you want to meet people and ha and talk with them, 
GaryCon is the place you can talk to uh, people who were there when Dungeons and Dragons started. Uh, it is put on by the Gygax family. Luke Gygax, Ernie Gygax, Elise Gygax, Heidi Gygax. Uh, I know I'm leaving out some of the Gygaxes, but Gary's children are behind this. It is a way of honoring them. This year, uh, I was invited to, because Gary Khan ended on Palm Sunday, I was invited to uh, take part and lead a Palm Sunday service. Mm. Uh, it is in March every year. It honors the memory of Gary Gygax, who was, uh, without him, I don't think any of us was, would be here today. Gaming like we are, we'd probably be doing something similar. But for us, he is the father of our hobby. And uh, it's just, I mean, you meet people, uh, you meet people like uh, Frank Mincer there. You meet people like Bruce Hurd, who made uh, Miss Stara and all of that uh you will uh, meet many authors uh you uh, artists like larry elmore i mean you're you just walk in and sit down and have a chat with larry he's just sitting there relaxing and you can chat with larry elmore or comic book guys like jolly blackburn uh you can sit down and pick up some dice and jump into a game of hackmaster with jolly blackburn and so i highly recommend it uh, it is a very family-friendly convention. I'm sorry, I go on about Gary Khan, but I've got Gary Khan's the only con I go to where I actually can relax. I'm not always on. I can just go up there and be Derek the gamer. Though they know me as the geek preacher, when I go to Gary Khan, they just treat me like another gamer, and it, that is one of the greatest feelings I can ever have. Awesome. I may try and make it up this year. It's pretty close to where I live. Hey, please do. Please do, man. I, I, I'd love to see you guys there. Fantastic. Well, Derek, thank you again for coming on. Always a pleasure, and we're going to have to do this again. Yeah, definitely. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Take care. All right. Well, from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. What I'm saying, friend, may surprise you. Trust you and listen and hear I'm not out to make you angry We both know beneath our anger lies our fear it Sounds so simple, so complicated Not gentle, not just a warm feeling Many will die in the name of peace But war will not lead us to healing And I meant what I said, Peter Put down your sword, did you forget? Or did you think I was joking? This is not why I'm here, Peter not to destroy The world is already so broken Maybe you think I'm a fool Maybe a fool's what I am Maybe I will die for nothing 
Nothing will change in the end Yes, I'm scared and I'm angry We live in this occupied land Romans can kill us at random The Romans do not rule my hands There are so many lives on the line here This is not some philosopher's game But if you draw your sword You may not raise that sword in my name I meant what I said, Peter Put down your sword, did you forget? Or did you think I was joking? This is not why I'm here, Peter Not to destroy the world is already so broken Maybe you think I'm a fool Maybe a fool's what I am Maybe I will die for nothing If nothing will change God bless the children of Abraham God bless the Romans who reign God bless the peacemakers and the warriors Who each think the other insane And I meant what I said, Peter did you forget? Or did you think I was joking? That was Peter by David Lamott from his 2003 album Spin, used here with permission and encouragement. Find him on the web at davidlamott.com. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.